Chapter 39 of The Countess of Rodelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rodelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 39. In the first moments, Consuelo, passing from a hall in which shone the brightness of a hundred torches into a place lighted only by the flame of her little lamp, could distinguish nothing but a luminous mist diffused about her, which her sight could not penetrate. But by degrees her eyes became accustomed to the obscurity, and as she saw nothing frightful between herself and the walls of a hall, exactly similar in its extent and octagon form, to that which he had just left. She was sufficiently reassured to go and examine closely the strange characters which he perceived upon the walls. It was a single long inscription, disposed in several circular lines which extended round the hall and was not interrupted by any opening. On making this observation, Consuelo did not ask herself how she was to get out of this dungeon, but what could have been the use of such a construction? Ominous ideas, which she at first rejected, presented themselves to her mind. But those ideas were soon confirmed by the inscription, which she read walking slowly and holding her lamp on a level with the characters. Contemplate the beauty of these walls seated upon the rock, twenty-four feet thick and erected a thousand years since, and which neither the assaults of war, the action of time, nor the efforts of workmen have been able to injure. This masterpiece of architectural masonry was raised by the hands of slaves, doubtless to contain the treasures of a magnificent master. Yes, to enclose in the entrails of the rock, in the depths of the earth, treasures of hatred and of vengeance. Here have perished, here have suffered, here have wept, groaned, and blasphemed. Twenty generations of men, the greater part innocent, some heroic, all victims or martyrs, prisoners of war, serfs who had revolted or were too much crushed by taxes to pay new ones, religious innovators, sublime heretics, the unfortunate, the conquered, fanatics, saints, wicked men also. Men educated to the ferocity of battlefields, to the law of murder and pillage, subjected in their turn to a horrible retribution. These are the catacombs of feudalism, of military or religious despotism. These are the dwellings which powerful men caused to be constructed for enslaved men, to stifle the cries and hide the bodies of their overpowered and enchained brothers. Here there is no air to breathe, not a ray of daylight, not a stone on which to rest the head, only rings of iron fastened to the wall through which to pass the end of the prisoner's chain, and to prevent his choosing a place for repose on the damp and chilly soil. Here there was air, light, food, only when it pleased the guards posted in the hall above to open the cabin for an instant and to throw a morsel of bread to hundreds of unfortunates heaped upon each other the day after a battle, 
wounded or bruised for the most part, and still more horrible, sometimes to a single one, remaining the last in dying and suffering and despair in the midst of the putrefied corpses of his companions, sometimes eaten by the same worms before being entirely dead and falling into putrefaction himself before the feeling of life and the horror of reflection were extinguished in his brain. This, O neophyte, is the source of that human greatness which you have perhaps contemplated with admiration and jealousy in the world of the powerful. Fleshless skulls, broken and dried human bones, tears, stains of blood, such is the meaning of the emblems on your coats of arms. If your fathers have bequeathed to you the lot of the patriciate, this is what should be represented on the shields of the princes whom you serve, or whom you aspire to serve, if you have issued from the people. Yes, this is the foundation of the titles of nobility, this the source of the hereditary glory and riches of the world, this the manner in which was raised and maintained a caste which the other castes still fear, flatter, and caress, this this is what men invented to raise themselves from father to son above other men. Having read this inscription by making the circuit of the jail three times, Consuelo, overpowered by grief and terror, placed her lamp upon the ground and bent upon her knees to rest. A profound silence reigned in that gloomy palace, and horrible reflections were awakened in crowds. Consuelo's vivid imagination invoked somber visions about her. She thought she saw livid shadows, covered with hideous wounds, move around the walls or crawl upon the ground by her side. She thought she heard their lamentable groans, their death rattles, their feeble sighs, the clanking of their chains. She resuscitated in her thought the life of the past, such as it must have been in the Middle Ages, such as it had been even recently in the religious wars. She thought she heard above her, in the hall of the guards, the heavy and ominous step of those iron-shod men, the resounding of their pikes upon the pavement, their brutal laughs, their wassail songs, their threats and their oaths when the complaints of the victims ascended to them and interrupted their horrible slumbers. For they had slept, those jailers, they must, they could have slept over that infected abyss, whence exhaled the miasmas of the tomb and the bellowings of hell. Pale, her eyes fixed and her hair stiffened with horror, Consuelo saw and heard nothing more. When she recovered sensation of her own existence and rose to escape the cold that was stealing over her, she perceived that a stone of the pavement had been raised and thrown over during her painful ecstasy, and that a new path was open before her. She approached and saw a narrow and steep staircase which she descended with difficulty, and which led her into another cavern, more confined and more flattened than the first. When she touched the ground, which was soft and as if yielding to the foot, Consuelo lowered her lamp to see if she did not sink in the mud. She saw only a grayish dust, finer than the finest sand, and showing here and there as accidents, like flintstones, the head of a thigh bone, 
the remains of a skull, a jaw still furnished with white and solid teeth, testimonials of youth and strength suddenly broken by a violent death. Some skeletons, almost entire, had been taken out of this dust and raised against the walls. There was one perfectly preserved, erect and chained by the metal of the body, as if he had been condemned to perish there without the power of lying down. His body, instead of bowing and falling forward, bent and dislocated, was stiffened, hardened in the joints, and thrown back in an attitude of superb boldness and implacable disdain. The ligaments of his frame and members were ossified. His head, upturned, seemed to look at the vaulted ceiling, and his teeth, closed by a last contraction of the jaws, appeared to laugh with a terrible laugh, or a transport of sublime fanaticism. Above him, his name and history were written in large red characters upon the wall. He was an obscure martyr of religious persecution, and the last of the victims immolated in that place. At his feet knelt a skeleton, whose head, detached from the vertebrae, lay upon the pavement, but whose stiffened arms still held the knees of the martyr. It was his wife. Among other details, the inscription bore. Anne Blank perished here, with his wife, his three brothers, and his two children, for not having been willing to abjure the Lutheran faith, and for having persisted, even under tortures, in denying the infallibility of the Pope. He died erect and dried up, in some manner petrified, and without being able to look at his family dying at his feet on the ashes of his friends and his forefathers. Opposite this inscription was read the following, Neophyte, the friable soil you tread is twenty feet deep. It is not sand, it is not earth, it is human dust. This place was the ossuary of the chateau. It was here they threw those who had expired in the jail above, when there was no longer room for newcomers. These are the ashes of twenty generations of victims. Happy and rare the patricians who can count among their ancestors twenty generations of assassins and executioners. Consuela was less horrified at the sight of these funereal objects than she had been in the jail by the suggestions of her own mind. There is something too grave and too solemn in the aspect of death itself, to permit the weakness of fear and the heart-rendings of pity, to obscure the enthusiasm or the serenity of strong and believing minds. In the presence of these relics, the noble adept of the religion of Albert felt more respect and charity than terror or dismay. She knelt before the remains of the martyr, and feeling her moral strength return, cried as she kissed that fleshless hand. Oh, it is not the august spectacle of destruction that can occasion horror or pity. It is rather the idea of life, struggling with the torments of agony. It is the thought of what must have passed in those desolate souls, which fills with bitterness and with terror the thoughts of the living. But thou, unhappy victim, dying erect, with thy head turned towards heaven, thou art not to be pitied, for thou didst not faint, and thy soul was breathed out in a transport of fervor which fills me with veneration. 
Consuela rose slowly, and with a kind of calmness detached her bridal veil, which had caught upon the bones of the woman kneeling by her side. A narrow and low door had opened before her. She resumed her lamp, and careful not to look back, she entered a narrow and dark passage which descended with a rapid slope. On her right and left, she saw the entrances of cells smothered under the mass of an architecture truly sepulchral. Those dungeons were too low for a man to stand erect in, and hardly long enough for one to lie down. They seemed the work of the Cyclops, so strongly were they built and arranged in the masses of masonry, as if to serve as dens for savage and dangerous animals. But Consuelo could not be deceived. She had seen the arenas of Verona. She knew that the tigers and bears formerly kept for the amusement of the circus were the combats of gladiators were a thousand times better lodged. Besides, she read upon the iron doors that these impregnable dungeons had been reserved for conquered princes, for valiant captains, for the most important prisoners, those most feared on account of their rank, their intelligence, or their energy. Such formidable precautions against their escape testified the love or the respect with which they had inspired their partisans. This was the place in which had been silenced the roaring of those lions who had made the world shudder at their cry. Their power and their will had been broken against an angle of the wall. Their Herculean chests had dried up in panting for a little breath of air. By the side of an imperceptible opening cut, angling in twenty-four feet of stone. The eagle eye had been worn out in seeking a feeble light in eternal darkness. It was there were buried alive, those men whom their enemies feared to kill in broad daylight. Illustrious heads, magnanimous hearts, had there expiated the exercise and, doubtless also, the abuse of power. After having wandered some time in those dark and damp galleries, which buried themselves under the rock, Consuelo heard a noise of running water, which recalled to her the fearful torrent of Riesenberg. But she was too much engrossed by the misfortunes and the crimes of humanity to think long of herself. She was compelled to stop a while in order to make the circuit of a well on a level with the surface, which was lighted by a torch. Beneath the torch she read upon a post these few words, which required no comment. There they drowned them. Consuelo leaned forward to look inside of the well. The water of the stream, which she had navigated so peacefully an hour before, was engulfed here at a frightful depth, and whirled roaring, as if greedy to seize and drag away a victim. The red light of the pitchy torch gave to those frightful waves the color of blood. At last Consuelo arrived before a massive door, which she tried in vain to move. She asked herself if, as in the initiation of the pyramids of Egypt, she was to be raised in the air by invisible chains while a gulf opened beneath her feet, and a sudden and violent gust of wind extinguished her lamp. Another fear agitated her still more seriously. Since she entered the gallery, she had perceived that she was not alone. Someone followed her so lightly that she could not hear the least noise of steps. 
but she thought she had distinguished the rustling of a garment beside her own, and when she had passed the well, the light of the torch then behind her had thrown upon the side of the wall she followed two moving shadows instead of one. What was then this fearful companion whom she was forbidden to look at, under penalty of losing the fruit of all her labors and of never crossing the threshold of the temple? Was it some frightful specter, the ugliness of which would chill her courage and disturb her reason? She no longer saw his shadow, but she imagined she heard the noise of his breathing quite near to her, and that fatal door which would not open. The two or three minutes which passed in this expectation appeared to her an age. That mute acolyte frightened her. She feared that he might wish to try her by speaking to her, while he compelled her by some trick to look at him. Her heart beat with violence. At last she saw that there was an inscription over the door for her to read. Here the last trial awaits thee, and it is the most cruel. If thy courage fail thee, strike two blows upon the left fold of this door. If not, strike three upon the right. Remember that the glory of the initiation will be proportionate to thy efforts. Consuelo did not hesitate and knocked thrice on the right. The fold of the door opened as of itself, and she entered a vast hall lighted by numerous torches. There was no person in it, and at first she could not understand the strange objects symmetrically arranged in lines around her. They were machines of wood, of iron and brass, the use of which was unknown to her. Curious weapons, displayed upon tables or suspended from the walls. For an instant she thought herself in a museum of artillery, for there were in fact muskets, cannon, culverines, and a whole apparatus of warlike machines serving as a foundation for other instruments. They were collected all the means of destruction invented by men to immolate each other. But when the neophyte had advanced a few steps through this arsenal, she saw other articles of a more refined barbarism. Wooden horses, wheels, saws, melting tubs, pulleys, hooks, a whole museum of instruments of torture and upon a large inscription raised in the midst and surmounting a trophy formed of masses of pinchers, scissors, files, toothed hatchets, and all the abominable utensils of the tormentor. She read, They are all very precious, all authentic. They have all been used. Then Consuela felt a faintness in her whole being. A cold sweat bathed the tresses of her hair. Her heart no longer beat. Incapable of withdrawing from the horror of this spectacle and from the direful visions which assailed her in crowds, she examined what was before her with that stupid and fatal curiosity which seizes upon us in an excess of horror. Instead of closing her eyes, she contemplated a kind of bell of bronze which had a monstrous head and a round cask placed upon a misshapen body without legs, and cut off at the level of the knees. It resembled a colossal statue of rough workmanship intended to ornament a tomb. Little by little, Consuelo, issuing from her torpor, understood by an involuntary intuition that the sufferer was placed bent under this bell. 
The weight was so terrible that by no human effort could he possibly raise it. The interior dimension was so exact that he could not move. Still, it was not with the design of smothering him that he was there placed, for the visor of the helmet lowered in the place of the face, and all the parts surrounding the head were pierced with little holes, in some of which still remained sharpened stilettos. By means of these cruel stings, the victim was tormented in order to force from him an avowal of his real or imaginary crime. The betrayal of his relatives or friends, the confession of his political or religious faith. Footnote. Anyone may see an instrument of this kind, with a hundred others not less ingenious in the arsenals of Venice. Consuelo had not seen it there. Those horrible instruments of torture, as well as the sight of the cells of the Holy Office and of the leads of the Ducal Palace, were not open to the examination of the world until after the entrance of the French into Venice, during the wars of the Republic. Upon the upper part of the helmet, in letters cut in the metal, were these words in the Spanish language, Long live the Holy Inquisition. And below, a prayer which seemed dictated by a ferocious compassion, but which perhaps came from the hand and heart of the poor workman condemned to fabricate this infamous machine. Holy Mother of God, pray for the poor sinner. A lock of hair, torn away in the torments and doubtless glued with blood, had remained under this prayer as a frightful and indelible stigma. It issued from one of the holes enlarged by the stiletto. They were white hairs. Suddenly Consuelo saw no more and ceased to suffer, without being warned by any feeling of physical pain, for her soul and her body existed no longer, but in the body and soul of violated and mutilated humanity. She fell straight and stiff upon the pavement, like a statue detached from its pedestal. But at the moment when her head was about to strike the bronze of the infernal machine, she was received in the arms of a man whom she did not see. It was Liverani. End of chapter 39